2 Samuel 6. When we study the Old Testament, we gain a, a better appreciation of the holiness of God. So, on this side of the cross, this would be a good exercise. I'm going to give you a couple right now, but maybe sometime in your, in your devotions and your family devotions, just, just think about the things that we enjoy on this side of the cross after Jesus coming that the Old Testament saint knew nothing about. Uh, we can approach God as Father. That's an amazing thing. We can come right to God. Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father who is in heaven. That's an amazing thing. We enjoy fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is, he is in our midst. He dwells uh, with us. We even have a, the Holy Spirit. We have God's Spirit who dwells in our hearts. And so these are all things that are, um, they're intimate, right? Like we can know God. Like that's an intimacy that the Old Testament saint could have never imagined. But the danger for us in our intimacy with God, which we thank God for, is that we would forget his holiness. And so even as we sing a song like holy, 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 it's easy for us to just sort of say those words without any understanding of what we're actually saying. And, and I would even say, by the way, that the lack of study of the Old Testament is what has produced a generation that doesn't take God's holiness as seriously as we should. So the Old Testament teaches us that God's holiness has to do with his transcendence, that he is different from us. He is wholly other than us. Now, the amazing thing is that we can know him. That's amazing. We can know this God that is wholly different from us because he has chosen to reveal himself to us, and especially in the person of Jesus Christ. But three times in the Old Testament, uh, uh, an Old Testament saint gets a view into the very throne room of God, and I, I just want to mention one of you, one of them to you this morning, Isaiah. Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, it's a, a famous passage, goes into the, whole, the throne room of God. He, he sees the cherubim uh, flying around, or standing, actually. I noticed this week it actually says standing. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So, so there's this picture of the very throne room of God, somewhere in the universe, and there are these beings, these supernatural beings with, with, with wings that cover their eyes and wings that cover their feet and with wings that enable them to fly, and they're around the throne of God, and they are saying, calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I always, I always think those beings, who I have no doubt are still there now doing that job, you know, you might think, well, that sounds really boring just to sing holy, holy, holy all the time. Uh, but really, I, I think those are probably the most satisfied beings in the whole universe. They are beings who were created to display God's holiness and God's glory in this way, and they're doing exactly what they were created to do. And so Isaiah's response to this scene then is, famously, woe is me, for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people 
of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost, you could translate that, woe is me, for I am undone. I, I should cease to exist. I have come into the presence of the King of kings, the God of the universe. Uh, what, what's going to happen to me now? And that's what happens. Brothers and sisters, when, when humanity encounters the holiness of God, we fall to our feet. John, in, in the first chapter of Revelation, when he sees the glorified Jesus Christ, he falls to his feet. So, so there's something about when that supernatural holy God comes in contact with natural humanity. We, we're like, I, I, woe is me. And some theologians and pastors would tell you that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, and that's, that's just simply not true. Like I said, John sees the risen Lord Jesus and he falls to his feet. So I, I say all of this um, because 2 Samuel is going to show us what happens when human beings come into the presence of God. And I want to warn you, I am not kidding. This passage is going to press in on every single one of us this morning. If you will pay attention, at some point you're going to be rubbed the wrong way, hopefully not by me, uh, but by this passage and what God's Word has to say to us. Because when human beings come into the presence of God, we do not leave unchanged. So we're going to take the whole chapter this morning. It's a, it's a longer chapter, uh, 23 verses, uh, but I think it's important to take it all together. I'll read it as we get to it. Uh, we're going to divide it into three parts, the fear of the Lord and worship, the joy of the Lord and worship, and worship and the esteem of man. So I don't want to waste any more time. Let's, let's dig right in this morning and look at verses 1 through 11, the worship, worship and the fear of the Lord. And the first thing we see here is this return of the presence of God. So 2 Samuel 6, 1 and 2. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from, the, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. All right, so... The presence of God is the theme of this chapter, the presence of God, the presence of God specifically in the Ark of the Covenant. So the words Ark of the Covenant are going to appear in this chapter 15 times. So the presence of God. So David, now he's the king. We saw last week his coronation and he defeated the Philistines and he founded Jerusalem as the capital city. But now he has a very important thing that he wants to do. He wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city. Now, one thing that I hope you know about David, I hope you've read the Psalms enough to know this about David, and that is that he longs for the presence of God. He wants to be where God is, and he calls out for that over and over again. One of my favorite passages in the Psalms, Psalm 27.4, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I, if that would just be the cry of our heart, oh God, one thing I have asked of you, just that I may dwell in your presence all the days of my life to gaze upon your beauty. 
That's, that's David's heart. In Psalm 84, 1, he says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Brothers and sisters, I don't think that this is something that belongs in a different time and a different place. I think that this is something that is, we could have this today if we would set our hearts to know God and to long for Him and to say with David, my flesh longs for you, O God. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Wherever God is, that's where David wants to be. Okay, and then the Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's presence. So, you know, like, thanks to, to, to Raiders of the Lost Ark, we don't have to do as much introduction here as, as we might have uh, 40 years ago, but the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is this box. It's made of a kachia wood. It's overlaid with gold. The lid is called the mercy seat, and the lid has those two cherubim with their, their wings touching, and that mercy seat, that is the spot where God dwelt. That was the throne of God in the midst of the people. That is the place where the high priest once a year came in and sprinkled the blood of atonement on the mercy seat. And so we all know, because we've talked about it in here, that Israel is unique upon the, among the nations because the living God dwells in their midst, and he dwells specifically on this Ark of the Covenant. Now, let me just, just mention quickly, why does it need to come to Jerusalem? Because way back in 1 Samuel 4, which was like three years ago, and you may or may not remember, the Philistines were attacking Israel, and Eli's two terrible sons, Phinehas and Hophni, decided that it would be a good idea to take the Ark of the Covenant out and have it lead them into battle. But the problem was God wasn't in the battle. And so if you remember, the Philistines got the Ark and took it back to Philistia. And that's when Eli died. He fell over backwards because he was so shocked that the ark of God was gone from Israel. And the ark causes all kind of problems in Philistia and tumors and mice, and they're like, we can't have this thing, so they send it to a different city, they send it to a different city. Finally, they say, let's just put it on a couple of cows and send it off. And the cows take it back into Israel, and it goes to live uh, in a place called... Uh, Baal Judah. It goes to live in a place called, called Baal Judah. And, and really, if, if you notice, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but the, the Ark of the Covenant kind of disappears from the record, from like 1 Samuel 7 all the way to this point. Like Saul never mentions the Ark of the Covenant during his reign. But David wants to bring that presence of God back into Jerusalem. And so it's a distance of about six miles. And he takes 30,000 people, so a big congregation of Israel goes up to Baal, Judah, to, to get the ark and to bring it home. Look at verses 3 and 4. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. All right, verse 3 is the key to this whole section. They carried the ark on a new cart. Okay, here's what you need to know. God had given Israel very specific instructions about how to carry the ark. So in Exodus 25, it says that you're supposed to put four rings on the ark 
And they're supposed to be gold rings, and then you're supposed to take two poles of acacia wood and, and cover those in gold, and then you take those, those poles and you stick them into that rings, and God actually says, you leave them there. You, you don't move those poles. As a matter of fact, when the ark sat in the tabernacle, it says at one point that, that the poles stuck out through the curtains of the tabernacle because you carry the ark with poles, all right? And then in Numbers 4, God tells the priest, when, when you break down the camp, when it's time uh, for, the, for Israel to move out, the, the, the Levite priests are to go in there and they are to cover those things and they are to carry those things on a pole and you don't touch the ark and you don't look at the ark. Don't touch it, don't look at it because if you do, God says, you will die. All right, so Yahweh gives very instructions, very specific instructions about how to handle the ark. Don't look at it. Don't touch it. Yahweh's presence is going to be in the midst of the people, but you better be careful how you approach him. So hear this, and I want you to hear this today because this is very important as we look at what is about to happen to Uzzah. Yahweh does not want people to die. He says... If you don't want to die, you carry the ark like this. That is God's kindness. He doesn't want people to die. He warns us in his kindness. You'll actually hear people say often that they are turned off by the commands of the Bible. Obedience cramps my style. Why does God get to decide what I can and can't do? And I quote Proverbs 14, 12 in here all the time. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. So someone might say, it seems right to me that it would be okay to touch the ark. Well, that may seem right to you, but God says, if you touch the ark, you will die. Wisdom says, don't touch the ark. And the problem here is the new cart. Somebody had a bright idea, right? This isn't exactly rebellion. Somebody's like, Hey, down at, you know, Walmart, they've got these new ark carts with wheels. That seems a lot better than these poles. I mean, poles are so like a thousand years ago, guys. Like, we got to move, move into the, the cart days here. They thought they had a better idea. The problem is nobody checked the law. And I also, I think it's interesting here, God doesn't strike them down for using the cart, but they're ignoring God's word and they're putting themselves in danger. So as far as we know, Uzzah and Ahio are well-meaning, they are sincere. You can be well-meaning and sincere and not pay attention to God's word. And real quick, there's something else that's missing from this passage. I don't know if you've noticed it. David does not inquire of the Lord. So up until this point, we have seen David over and over, God, should I do this? God, should I do this? God, should I do this? He doesn't ask this time. He just assumes that bringing the ark to Jerusalem is such a good idea that, of course, God wants him to do it, and he doesn't check the law. Okay, so next, this next section here, we have the bursting out of the power of God, verses 5 and 6. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. 
And God struck him down because of his error, and he died there because of the ark of God. So the ark is proceeding to Jerusalem, 30,000 people singing and dancing. Verse 5 says they're playing their castanets. When the castanets come out of the Cleveland household, things are really getting crazy. Everybody's excited. And next to the ark, there's Uzzah. And, and maybe our Uzzah's like, I don't have time for castanets right now. I'm watching this ark. Like, I'm in charge of the ark. You guys play your castanets, your symbols, your triangles. They're walking along. They're excited. And then one of the oxen stumbles, and he reaches out to steady the ark. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and God struck him, and he died beside the ark. We aren't told how the Lord struck Uzzah. Perhaps there was a loud clap of thunder and lightning, maybe some physical manifestation of the holiness of God. Maybe power simply went out from the ark into the body of Uzzah, and he died. What is clear is that the Lord took his life, and it ended the party. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where everybody is loud and celebrating and having a good time, and then something tragic happens, and all of a sudden there's a silence that comes over the crowd. Uzzah is there, and he's dead. Does this offend you, honestly? And don't just give the church answer. I want you to, like, Look in your heart and answer that question, because if we're honest, we all would say, well, Uzzah was just trying to help. Should, should he have just let the ark fall to the ground? Isn't this se severe? And I do think it should tell us something about our heart towards God's holiness that our first instinct is often to accuse God of overreacting. See, that's how little we, we think of God's holiness here. It's too much. This doesn't seem right to me. And God is kind to warn us about so many dangerous things. He does not want us to die. He does not want us to do things that will harm our souls. Be careful of the love of money. Be careful of a heart that covets. Don't disobey your parents your own immoral desires, these things that God warns us about. And we say, why would God judge someone just for doing something that they love? Would we say the same thing to a child who runs in the street? Would we say, well, he just loves running between cars? And I hate to tell him no, because he loves it so much. What about when your five-year-old starts playing with matches? Well, he just, you know, he loves the warmth in his little fingers, the scratchy sound. He started a fire that burned down the house and killed some of our family, but he meant well. He was happy when he did it. And this is why the psalm says, the law is good. It keeps me safe. John, 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I've been saying a lot lately Jesus is not trying to make your life worse. And we would do well to see ourselves as little children who don't know what is dangerous. Now, before we move on, I want to say, I think it's worth mentioning here that I do not believe that Uzzah's eternal salvation is at stake. Uzzah suffered temporal judgment. Now, his family and the nation of Israel suffered great consequences for his disobedience. But we have no reason to think that Uzzah was condemned to hell 
for touching the ark. But that shouldn't cause us to stop shaking in our boots here. All right, number three then, fear and the holiness of God. Fear and the holiness of God. This is verses 8 through 10. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Eden, the Gittite. So when we come to the holiness of God, I want you to see here that there's this range of emotions. So David feels both anger and fear at what has happened. So let's take the anger first. And it wasn't really characteristic of David to be angry at God. We don't see him in the Psalms expressing anger at God. David may be angry at himself. He may be angry at the person who used the cart. He may be angry at Uzzah. But the Lord has broken out against Uzzah. And did you notice, if, if, if you're paying attention, extra credit, last week, remember Perez, uh, 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 Baal Perez, the master of, remember Smashtown? You know, God is, David renamed the place where, where God beat the Philistines, he renamed it Smashtown. Well, when God bursts out against the Philistines, it's like, yay! When God bursts out against our friends, it's like, ooh. See, we want God to burst out. We want God to, like, fight for your holiness, fight against our enemies, but then it, like, comes close by, and we're like, whoa, 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 God, whoa. You can be angry at my enemies, but, but don't you go being angry bursting out against my friends. And then we see David's fear here. David doesn't know what to do to the ark because he's afraid. By the way, I thought of this this week. Do you ever hear people say, we need to bring God back to America? We need to bring God back to America. That's a good impulse, but there might be some unexpected consequences. You bring God back to Jerusalem, and if you don't take God's holiness seriously, people die. So even, even the faithful are sometimes unaware of what we're saying of what we're talking about when we speak of the presence of God. So David takes it to a guy named Obed-Edom. He's like, I don't know what to do with this thing. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, a Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And so curiously, this section ends not on a note of terror, but on a note of blessing. So the ark of the God of God on one hand is so holy that if a man reaches out and touches it, he dies. But on the other hand, just its present in the house of Obed-Edom causes him to be blessed. Which tells us this as we move to the next section. The fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord can both live together in peace when we understand the holiness of God. All right, so which leads us then to the second section. Okay, so that first section was worship and the fear of the Lord. Let's look at worship and the joy of the Lord. This is verses 12 through 19. So David is chastened. In three months, he leaves the ark with Obed-Edom. I would say he has time to pray and read. So if you just mark it in your notes, if you're taking notes, in 1 Chronicles 15, we learn a little more about this. David says to the Levites, consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place where I have prepared it. For you did not carry it the first time, and the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him. 
So David has had time to pray and to check the Bible, and he says, okay, we're going to try to do this again, but this time we're going to do it the way that God told us to do it, okay? So he seeks the Lord. By the way, I just want to say this too. You guys, it is very good to be about the work of the Lord. Your elders and I hope that you will all begin to be stirred in your hearts to think of ways that you can serve God, but we must always seek the Lord to determine how He would have us to be about His work. Because if your service of God doesn't start with prayer and the Word of God, you might end up with a mess on your hands. And many well-meaning servants of the Lord have ended up with a total mess on their hands by barging into situations in the Lord's work without asking Him, without seeking Him. And when we ask God about our great idea for serving Him, be prepared that God may say, no, not right now, or not like that. And that shouldn't paralyze it, us, nor should it be an excuse to not serve Him, but it should be a reminder that God wants us to ask Him about everything. All right, so it was told to David, verses 12 through 13, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So David brings the ark into the city with rejoicing, and this time he is going to be as careful as possible. After six steps, he sacrificed. He's like, okay, we made it six steps. Let's offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We're doing a lot better than we were doing last time. And then verses 14 through 16, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David wore a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, and with the sound of the horn. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, shouldn't David have been struck down for the dancing? Do you see why this is so challenging for us? Because think about this. Uzzah touches the ark, and we're like, God, why are you taking that so seriously? David dances, and we're like, God, why are you putting up with that? Or we could say it like this, what bothers you more? Somebody having an expressive style of worship or Uzzah touching the ark? Which do you find unholy, the dancing or the touching? And you see, we expect God to burst out against things that we would burst out against. And we take sin lightly, but then we're bothered when somebody does something different than the way that we would prefer. So why is David dancing? And I mentioned earlier that David loved the presence of the Lord. He is having a physical, joyful reaction to the return of the presence of the Lord to Israel. It says he danced before the Lord, okay? So this is not a display for, for anybody else. You know, this is not interpretive dance. This is not, we're going to put somebody up here on stage and they're going to dance for you today. This is David is dancing before the Lord. He is focused on God. The text also says that he was wearing a linen ephod, and there's actually a lot of debate on this. Um, in further down the passage, we'll see that his wife condemns him, and she says this. She says that he has uncovered himself in the eyes of his servants. And so some have taken this to mean that David was dancing naked. Others have, have I, I found one writer who asked, did David dance in his tidy whities And the answer is so we'll get to this in a minute, but the linen ephod was simply the outfit of the priest, okay? 
So Samuel is said to have worn a linen ephod, and I think the point here is that David was not dressed in his kingly robes. He was dressed in simple garments, the robes of a servant. And the point is simply David was not trying to draw attention to himself. The text says he danced with all his might. And I know there's some cultural issues at stake here. Other cultures are more physical than we are, other denominations. But can it be said of us this morning that we sing with all our might? Would those of us around us say they were fully engaged with all their might in the worship of God? And so the presence of God that leads to fear can also lead to joy. And the risen Lord Jesus should drive us to our needs. You know, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, let's not be a church where someone would feel uncomfortable lifting their hands in praise to God. If someone were to pop out with the castanets, please don't ask them to leave or point to a sign that says no castanets. The Lord Jesus is alive. The penalty for sin has been paid. He is coming again. The Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. We can boldly come into the throne root of God. These truths and so many others should spark joy in us, even in our deepest suffering. Verses 17 through 19 describe the ark arriving in Jerusalem. Sacrifices are made. The people rejoice. David blesses the people. And he returns home, no doubt, full at the end of the day. But this leads to our final section, and it's a sad section in a sad passage. Worship and the esteem of men. Because you see, the presence of the Lord may lead to fear, and the presence of the Lord may lead to joy, but on this side of heaven, the presence of the Lord also leads to rejection. Because not everybody finds this scene to be as happy as David does. So verse 16 takes us away from the celebration into the very house of David. And we find Michael, David's wife. She is sitting by the window watching the proceedings. So 30,000 people are out there rejoicing the Lord, but she stayed home and she's peering through the drapes. And over and over again, we see she is called the daughter of Saul. It's clear that the writer is separating for us the old regime from the new Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She despises the dancing, she despises David, and she considers it beneath her and beneath him. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of those vulgar fellows who shamelessly uncovers himself. David comes home, he comes home from the worship service, and the text actually says he was looking to bless his household The people are blessed, David is blessed, and he comes home excited, 
How hard it must have been, as David had this heart so full of joy, to come in the door and find that there was somebody there who despised him. And when Michael says that David had uncovered himself in the eyes of his female servants, servants, she is saying, you have acted in a disgusting way that is unbecoming of a king. How derogatory, David. David, my father was a king, and I know what it means to be king, and it doesn't look anything like the way you behaved out there today with the riffraff. She is a sad, sad woman, and she is locked in her own hate. Consider the whole city has been out celebrating in the streets, rejoicing in the Lord, and she's sitting at home, peering out the window, getting madder and madder. There was a way that seemed right to Michael, and it did not involve her giving her heart and soul to the worship of Yahweh. David's house is divided, but David's heart is undivided. Verses 21 and 22, And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. So David came home, he was ready to bless the family, and now maybe he's angry, maybe he speaks through tears, but here's what he says, I don't care what other people think of my love for Yahweh. David says, I wasn't dancing for those servant girls, I was dancing for God. David may be king, David be, may be Michael's husband, but he is first and foremost a follower of Yahweh. And I was reminded of Jesus' words this week as I studied this passage in Luke 14. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. All our relationships must take second place to our commitment to Jesus Christ. You may be a mom or a dad, a son or a daughter, a husband or a wife, a king, a student or a pastor, but when it comes to serving Jesus, it doesn't matter what other people think. And David says, he says, I will make myself yet more contemptible to this. I am not moved by your contempt. The fact that you despise me doesn't cause me to say, maybe I should rethink this worship. It causes David to say, I will give myself more fully to him. And so we must all reckon with the fact that our worship is contemptible to the world around us. When you sing with all your might, there may be people sitting around who you, you who think, wow, that's embarrassing. But our expressions of fear and our expressions of joy in the Lord will only be understood by Him and by other believers, and, and, and others will not understand. I, others will not understand when we worship Him with all of our might. You know, last week we looked at in chapter 5 that, that verse that spoke of David's wives and his concubines. Clearly, this was an area of David's life that was not given to God, and we see the sad consequences of that. David lives in conflict with Michael, 2 Samuel 6, 23, the last verse of the passage, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Did, Davis, did David cease to spend time with Michael, or did God cleanse, close her womb in judgment? I suspect the former. But as we'll see with Absalom this summer, David was not particularly good at dealing with things in his home, and it leads to terrible, terrible consequences for him. 
All right, so we'll conclude. We'll conclude quickly. The presence of God in this chapter, I just want you to see this. It leads to fear. It leads to anger. It leads to rejoicing. It leads to contempt. Blessing and conflict. Uzzah dies. David dances. Michael despises. So many varied responses to the presence of the Lord. Now, it would be easy for me to make this a sermon about getting more into church and worship. Tyler's going to come up here in a few minutes, and I think you should all sing with all of your might. Sing louder than you've ever sung before, and I think we should. But I do think that misses the point, because if a father comes home every day and demands that his kids hug him and tell them that he loves them, but they don't feel it from the heart, they don't speak it from the heart, what good is that? This is a passage about our hearts toward God, his word, his presence, and his people. And it should be about recognizing that God is not like us and he is holy. I was thinking about this before I came up here to preach. You know, God doesn't dwell in the Ark of the Covenant anymore. He's, he's not in a temple over in Jerusalem. Where does he dwell? He dwells in our hearts. Like, we come together to be the household of God. So where should we gather to sing and to praise his name with the same kind of joy and the same kind of exuberance that we see in those 30,000 people bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. It's here. It's here. Brothers and sisters, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are, we are together in his presence, and we have reason to fall on our knees and rejoice. I'll ask it again because it's important. Which bothers you more, the holiness of God against Uzzah or the dancing of David? And I want to say this too. God will not be pleased if we hold our worship preferences tighter than we hold our commitment to obedience. Okay, so as we transition now, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together as we do, every Sunday. I just want to point out one more thing regarding the holiness of God. So remember, when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. And what did that symbolize? That symbolized that with Jesus' death, everyone could now come into the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells, the place where only the high priest went once a year to offer that sacrifice of atonement. That signalized God the Father saying, come on in. Come in. You're welcome. Through Jesus Christ, we have access, but at great cost. And he is the same. But now we can enter into his presence covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that covered the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant was just the blood of bulls and goats, and that wasn't sufficient to take away sins, but the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ has been poured out, and it now covers us so that we can come right in. And we learn from passages like this what's at stake, and we shouldn't take that for granted. So if you are a believer in the name of Jesus Christ this morning, I would invite you to come 
right into his presence. And we're going to take this bread and this cup, which is such a tiny little picture of the feast that awaits us. But let's rejoice together that Jesus has said, come and partake with me. Come and know me. Come and partake together with each other. And let's sing with joy as we sing the songs to close out our service. The men are going to come now, now, uh, come now men and, and brothers and sisters, and uh, distribute the bread and the cup. Uh, take a piece of bread, take a cup, hang on to it. I'll come back up here in just a minute, and I will read a passage for us before we partake together.